Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I discussed connectome harmonics and neural correlates of consciousness, specifically under the influence of psychedelics, mindfulness meditation, and dream sleep with Dr. Selene Adesoy. Dr. Adesoy's research explores brain dynamics and different states of consciousness, including sleep, meditation, and psychedelic states, as well as in psychiatric disorders, by analyzing fMRI and MEG data within the mathematical framework of harmonic waves. She has extensive experience working in experimental and computational neuroscience exploring neural correlates of consciousness. Currently, she is working as a postdoctoral researcher at Hedonia Transnational Research Group, University of Oxford. We had a great conversation, so please enjoy this episode with Dr. Selene Atasoy. Well, Dr. Atasoy, I often uh, ask my guests to share their own definition of consciousness or describe consciousness, and so given your studies, especially those of the, the LSD fMRI studies on the brain and, and, and your theories, you know, how would you go about describing or defining human consciousness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the biggest uh, challenges, if not the biggest challenge in actually studying consciousness. Uh, how do we define it? And um, there are different definitions in the neuroscience literature. So um, maybe I'll mention the two uh, most um, commonly used uh, definitions and I'll uh, proceed on one of them. Uh, So some neuroscientists prefer to define consciousness uh, as our daily awake conscious state. Um, So it is something that we experience in our daily wakeful state and something that is lost when we fall into, for instance, dreamless sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. And Another, maybe a broader definition of consciousness is uh, having subjective experiences. So any any state in which we can have uh, any type of subjective experience is defined as um, a state of consciousness. It can be an altered state of consciousness as well. So I uh, prefer to follow the second, the broader definition because um, it allows us to look at also the altered states of consciousness. So in, um, for instance, in that definition, we can see dreaming as uh, definitely a state of consciousness, a, a conscious state. So instead of looking right. at it uh, from rather a binary perspective, absent and present, it's, uh, we can expand its dimensionality. So it becomes uh, rather a spectrum of consciousness uh, or conscious states where all these altered states such as the psychedelic states, meditation or sleep, um, which I'm also interested in studying, they can be seen as different states in the spectrum of consciousness. So I kind of prefer uh, maybe referring to this spectrum of consciousness. Okay. That makes sense. And that's, that will lead you to to study the, these altered states of consciousness, you know, especially those through under the, the influence, so to say, of, of LSD? Um, yes. I mean, LSD state or uh, the psychedelic state would be one example of an altered state of consciousness. Uh, we also um, now have studies going on on the sleep states as well as on meditation, on mindfulness meditation. So I would refer to each of these states as an altered state of consciousness oh, or wonderful. an alternative state. I don't know if altered seems to assume that there's a normal state of consciousness. So an alternative, okay, alternative state. state. Or altered okay. state. I mean, I, I personally could use either. 
but I acknowledge that altered uh, may imply that there's a normal state and we are just altering it in a way. Oh, interesting. So you don't see the, the, I, I, I don't want to use the word normal now, but the, like my state right now <laughs> that I'm in, you don't see that as, as a normal state. I mean, because of the spectrum. Sleep state is as normal as the daily conscious state, I believe. So it's yeah. uh, it's a it's a choice. Like it's where where do we set our zero point in a way? We can decide to refer to daily awake conscious state as the normal state of consciousness, but um, seems like consciousness is a is rather a spectrum even in our daily life. Uh, so we sleep every night, and that is another state of consciousness which um, I believe is not abnormal. So in that sense, um, we, could, we could use the term alternative or altered um, interchangeably. Okay. All right, that makes sense. So your, your theory, the, if I'm saying this right, the connectome harmonics, is that correct? Uh, yes. I mean, the name is correct. Uh, although I wouldn't call it a theory. I would rather call it a method. Um, a method. Yeah, because there is no, like, it, it is not a theory of consciousness, but it is a tool that allows us to study brain activity in different conscious states. Okay, well, give us a little bit of an overview of, of what this, uh, what this uh, method is and, and, you know, how you came about it and, you know, anything you just want to share on a kind of high-level overview of what, what Connectome Harmonics is. Yeah, um, maybe I'll I'll explain or uh, briefly share uh, the inspiration behind all of that because it is really Please. like a work that evolved over time, um, and the inspiration was um, I mean the whole development of the framework that we now call Connectome Harmonics uh, was inspired based on this observation that harmonic patterns are actually ubiquitous in nature. Um, and what do I mean with harmonic patterns? Uh, so, for instance, every time we play a musical note uh, in a musical instrument, there is a standing wave pattern emerging within the instrument. And that pattern is harmonic. Or we can, the, the equations that explain these harmonic patterns, they also um, describe, for instance, um, electron orbits um, in, in atoms or electromagnetic interaction patterns within a grid of ions. But for us, or for me, the most um, inspiring one was when, when I came across the study uh, which showed that these harmonic patterns are also the building blocks of biological pattern formation and morphogenesis. Uh, so animal code patterns, so building blocks of the animal code patterns. Um, and there are two quite interesting studies which go hand in hand. Uh, so one of them is, a, is actually a very old experiment from the 18th century, um, performed by a musician and a mathematician called Ernst Kladny, who actually scattered some sand on a metal plate. Um, and then he played the metal plate using a violin bow. So he let the plate vibrate. And for certain frequencies, he observed that actually the sand uh, self-organizes on the metal plate. Now, this is the same phenomenon as in musical instruments. So when we play a musical note, there's a standing wave. And he just managed to visualize the standing wave pattern emerging on the metal plate uh, using hmm. sand. 
and uh, later on in 1990s, Murray and his colleagues have uh, come up with this, uh, for me, very inspiring idea where they cut the metal plate in the shape of an animal's skin. And then they visualize the standing waves emerging on that particular geometry. And that actually resembles different types of animal coat patterns, such as giraffes, uh, giraffe patterns or zebra patterns. And uh, I mean, the, the reason they did that is because uh, they were following a mathematical model which was predicting that these harmonic patterns would be the building blocks of, uh, of the animal coat patterns. So having seen that, um, that these type of harmonic patterns are actually ubiquitous in nature, that they emerge in, in physical as well as biological phenomena. Now we hypothesize what if, um, what if the brain activity was also following similar principles. So instead of uh, using like a metal plate geometry, we actually created a detailed map uh, of human brain's anatomy. And we apply the same mathematical equation that describes all of these natural phenomena, in this case, to the particular structural connectivity of the human brain. So that basically is uh, the idea behind connectome harmonics. So in that sense, for each frequency, um, they would observe a different, different sand pattern on the metal plate. So when you change the frequency, the sand naturally adapts to create a new pattern. And uh, right. similarly, we get a set of different patterns uh, that would emerge on the particular anatomical connectivity of the human brain. And the set of all of these patterns, that, uh, the, the whole set, we call them connectome harmonics because each of them would give us a different harmonic pattern. Yeah, when you're looking um, at these patterns, um, and I know I, I saw, it's funny, it, it made me laugh a little bit. When I watched one of your videos, you put up the equation for this and you said it was a simple equation. And after, after three semesters of calculus, it did not look simple to me. <laughs> well, it is uh, well. Yeah. Okay. I well. I understand. It is simple in the sense it's just really one line equation that we solve, uh, and we get all these sets of patterns that seem to um, seem to match actually some of the networks that people have reported in the literature. So in that sense, it's not actually a uh, a complicated model. Um, right. So it is really just one line of equation that we are solving. Uh, and the, the biggest encouragement in all of, this, uh, all of these studies was when we actually observed that some of these harmonic patterns were matching the networks, the resting state networks that people have reported in the literature. So uh, in a way, it's a very simplistic explanation for the emergence of these type of resting state networks. Okay, and you're measuring, what, what is actually, what are these waves? You know, I know that waves propagate through something. Are these electrical waves that are propagating through these uh, networks in the brain? Yeah, so it would be, in this case, it would be the amount of brain activity. Uh, so in, it is, in that sense, I think it is important to note the difference between the mechanical vibrations. So what is oscillating, uh, maybe it is better to think about fluctuations or oscillations in the case of brain activity, uh, because what is oscillating is the amount of brain activity. So this electrochemical activity, so to speak. Um, and 
it is a very well-known uh, key aspect of brain activity that uh, has been measured using different uh, functional neuroimaging methods or techniques that brain activity actually oscillates over time. Um, and a, a really remarkable property is that these oscillations are actually synchronized among spatially distributed parts of the brain. So different regions that seem that are anatomically not neighbor to each other actually synchronize their activity over time. So in that sense, there is a remarkable similarity between these uh, metal plates that we are talking about because the, the same thing we can also observe on a vibrating metal plate. But in the case of brain, of course, it is, we are not talking about a mechanical vibration, but we are rather talking about oscillations of brain activity. Okay. And this, and this is measured in, with different instruments over time, and it's something that we, we were already well aware of. You were just taking data from a, a specific set of uh, experiments and running your, your models and your equations through this and, and finding some very uh, interesting results from that. And so, in fact, actually, we were trying to, we were brainstorming about how to put the different pieces of the puzzle together. So when we look at brain activity, um, we know that it oscillates over time. That has been very well observed during, throughout the literature. And then in the almost last two decades, we know that these oscillations actually are synchronized. And we also know that the, the anatomical connectivity of the brain shapes these, um, these oscillations and these uh, synchronized patterns. So these three components seem to be like there are oscillations over time, synchronizations over space, and the anatomy of the human brain, uh, which influences both aspects. Now, if you look at the, the example, again, the, the example of the music or example of vibrating metal plates, we again observe these oscillations over time for each region, and there, there's a synchronization uh, occurring on the metal plates. And like I mentioned in the beginning, if you change the, if you cut the metal plate into a different shape, the waves are naturally going to adapt. So there was kind of a remarkable similarity. Um, and we just hypothesized maybe it could be really the case that that would also explain uh, some of these patterns that we observe in the brain. So uh, that, was the, that was the biggest motivation of, of proceeding with this work, but also, of course, acknowledging that we are talking about um, electrochemical uh, waves, so to speak, about, about oscillations of brain activity, amount of activity, and not mechanical oscillations. Okay. And in, in measuring this, this activity, you measured energy and power of these uh, alternate brain states. Is that correct? Um, yes, but maybe one thing to explain in order to understand how we did that. Uh, so that was a follow-up study. Uh, once we computed these connecton harmonic patterns, um, we, one way to think about them is like, a, like I mentioned, the musical analogy. So it, we can think of each of these patterns um, like a wave that would accompany a musical note in, in mm -hmm. the case of music. And in the case of brain, it would be um, a, a synchronized state of brain activity that would accompany a certain frequency. So the same way that we can take a very complex musical piece 
and decompose it into its musical notes, we can actually take brain activity that has been measured, for instance, using functional magnetic resonance imaging with fMRI, and then we can decompose it into these connectome harmonics. And we can, we can look at uh, whether a certain harmonic is present or how strongly it is expressed in brain activity. And this is exactly what we did. And then this strength of expression is what we call power. So how, how loudly is that musical note playing? Right. And you mentioned when you, and I guess there's something I should mention. It appears as though when a subject is under the influence of one of these conditions, uh, you know, psychedelics or meditating or, or sleep dream state, that their, their mind is actually silenced and that that allows the, these, these, the power and energy that you're measuring to actually increase? Um, yes, actually, that was a very surprising and interesting finding. And when we talk about silencing the mind, actually, that is the, the, the way we refer to meditation. Um, right. Although I don't know if it is fully correct because it was mindfulness meditation. So I think it is very important at this point to to mention that um, I don't know if there's any way to really fully silence the mind. So when we meditate or when we uh, are in sleep, there, the brain activity is still going on and we still observe very synchronized and complex patterns of brain activity and maybe even more so sometimes during these states than uh, the daily awake conscious states. So uh, silencing the mind in that sense would be actually referring to the meditati meditative state. Uh, but I don't know if it's a fully correct way of describing meditation because the data that we looked at was mindfulness meditation. So the subjects mm -hmm. were um, actually observing in a way their own thoughts and, um, and coming back to the breath. So the, the instructions were that way. Right. But it was still really remarkable um, to see that during mindfulness meditation, for naive subjects as well as for uh, experienced meditators, we observed that the, the repertoire of these connectome harmonics actually broadened in a way. And certain harmonics, which um, most of which were high-frequency connectome harmonics, they were more powerfully expressed. And uh, this was much, much um, clearer in the case of experienced meditators. So the, the effect seems to be clearly there. And maybe it was a bit counterintuitive in that sense. We would have expected uh, meditation to just... Uh, quieten the brain activity and not express that many connectome harmonics, but I was exact opposite of that. So it was a very surprising and interesting finding to see that the repertoire actually expands or certain harmonics increase their, their power um, when we meditate. Yeah, that, that does seem a, a little counterintuitive, but you also found... Um, that the lower frequencies showed a reduced energy. Is that correct? And those kind of correlated to what people describe as ego dissolution and emotional arousal. Yes, exactly. But that was, um, so in, in our study with the, with the psychedelic state, with LSD induced psychedelic state, we did find uh, a suppression, a very strong suppression, actually, in a range of low-frequency connectome harmonics. 
Um, and the amount of suppression correlated um, uh, significantly with the intensity of ego dissolution that, um, that people have reported during their psychedelic experience. So the feeling of having no boundaries or being one with the universe in a way. Um, but in the meditation data set, we didn't find that type of suppression. So in a way, meditation and psychedelic states um, using this type of method showed some similarities in their neural signatures. But one of the biggest difference was that psychedelic state was actually suppressing the low frequency range, whereas meditation was not. Oh, interesting. And, that's, and, I, and I guess that's an important thing here is you're, you're really um, correlating people self-reporting what their experiences were with um, your observations of, of these frequencies and, and the power. Uh, yes, so this, the, the participants were reporting uh, the intensity of, for instance, uh, the experience of ego dissolution. And then we correlated among participants um, how, how much they rated their experience of ego dissolution, so how intensely they experienced it, and how much mm -hmm. of the suppression we observed in the low frequencies. Is there, is there any correlation to the default mode network? And, and feel free to laugh if I get something completely wrong. But if, is there a correlation to this ego dissolution and your experimental observations to the default mode network? Is there any connection between what you might say is ego and that default mode network? Uh, I think there is a connection, but, uh, well, I think our findings are a bit more generic than the default mode network. So the mm. default mode network would correspond to one particular harmonic. So we found that it always corresponds to one harmonic more significantly than any other. Um, mm. And that harmonic is suppressed in the psychedelic state. We observe a decrease in its expression. Uh, but we find a suppression in a broader range of low frequencies uh, where default mode network would be one of them. Uh, and we didn't find with one particular harmonic that... Um, so I wouldn't, based on our uh, findings, I wouldn't call the default mode network as the seed of ego, to be honest, because for okay. that we had to correlate that particular network uh, with that experience. Um, where I'm aware that other studies may be concluding that, but based on purely our study, um, I think it would be fair to say it was a broader range of networks or broader range of harmonics that were suppressed, and that suppression correlated with the ego dissolution. So uh, it may or may not be the case with the default mode network. It's just our study. I feel our study can't answer that fully yet. Okay. I guess that makes it feel a little bit better. I'd like it to be the ego to be a little more complicated than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't know, I guess. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't be. I, I mean, I think it's still a, an open question, but our findings doesn't conclude that the DM default mode network would be the seed of ego based on this study. Okay. okay. Um, one other thing, you mentioned the higher frequencies increased in energy, and that was related to positive moods. And... I think I already understand you've already answered kind of the theory behind all this already, but I'm just curious as to what positive moods means. Does that mean they're, they're feeling happy, optimistic, joyful? Is that the kind of thing a, a positive mood is? 
Yeah, I think in the um, in the questionnaire, the ratings that uh, the participants filled in afterwards, it was any kind of a positive emotion. Um, okay. All right, that makes sense. Um, now you mentioned that, and I'm, I'm really curious about this one, the LSD appears to be, and I, I don't know if this also applies to mindfulness meditation and to dream state, but it appears to be activating more brain states simultaneously. And I don't know if we should address that first, but there's multiple parts to this. So it, it seems to be activating more brain states simultaneously and that it reorganizes those brain states. And I, I remember as I'm asking this question, I remember a bell curve I think you showed in one of your presentations and how the tails of the curve were a little bit higher, you know, with LSD showing maybe more, more energy. Um, and then the brain starts to enter this, this area that you call criticality, which is between order and chaos. So I don't know if there was a, I do have a follow-up question to that, but do you want to expand on that or, or help clarify that what I just said? Um, yeah, I mean, you have summarized it really nicely, actually. Uh, maybe one thing um, for an intuitive understanding is really these brain states that we are talking about in uh, right now are the connectome harmonics. So in a way, um, okay. we are following on, on the idea of decomposing fMRI data into these harmonic brain states. Um, just like decomposing any complex musical piece into its musical notes. And what we found when we uh, decompose psychedelic-induced state or LSD-induced state um, into harmonics compared to placebo-induced uh, state or the placebo state mm -hmm. into harmonics was that under the effect of LSD, the brain was actually activating more of these connectome harmonics. So I really like using this musical analogy because it, it gives a very intuitive understanding. So in that sense, it would be really uh, playing many more musical notes uh, simultaneously uh, compared to the placebo condition. And I sometimes use the example of an improvising jazz musician when I try to explain what is going on in the brain under the effect of LSD because it seems like that um, so there are studies which reported that improvising jazz musicians actually uh, play more musical notes during impro improvisation compared to memorized play. And in a similar manner, the brain is activating more of these connectome harmonics at the same time under the effect of LSD. And it is really not doing it in a very random fashion. You know, it is not like a child pressing the, the, the keys on a piano but there is a structure to it. And um, that made us also uh, hypothesize or, or look even deeper into what is called criticality because criticality um, is a certain uh, type of dynamics um, that, is really at, uh, that is emerging really at the balance between order and chaos. And it is not only specific to the brain, many different systems can be at criticality. So in a way, there is, um, there is enough structure for it not to be fully random and nonsense, but there is also enough flexibility for it to try out something new and create new patterns. Right. And so it's this border between order and chaos. And I guess uh, in, in my 
limited study of complex systems, the analogy is also kind of like a, a pile of sand. And as the sand piles up higher and higher, it maintains a structure and then suddenly it reorganizes itself, you know, kind of flattens down so they can start building up again. Is that that criticality is that that moment right there was the, almost the tension between the, the order parts and then the reorganization chaotic part of it? Uh, yeah, I, I have a much more naive um, uh, example of that that I always have in my mind when I think about criticality. So uh, it's a quite complicated concept, I think. And for me, the most intuitive way to understand it uh, is when I think of structure as like uh, maybe um, like a big group of soldiers who are marching together and perfectly synchronized with each other. So everyone is wearing the same clothing and uh, moving with the same rhythm at the same time. And uh, that, would be, that would be purely structured. Whereas the opposite end of that spectrum would be maybe a bunch of kids playing where everyone is doing what they want to do and no one is actually interacting properly with each other, but everyone is totally free and there is total chaos. Right. And just somewhere in between would be maybe a group of people who are dancing together where everyone is, uh, is uh, individual and moving individually but also interacting with each other with, uh, to some degree so that there is flexibility yet also organization. Oh, I like that. And that would be criticality where the two opposing forces are actually in a way balanced. One force would be creation of structure and everybody moving together and the other force would be individuality where everyone is doing what they want to do. And somewhere in between when these two are balanced, there is this... Um, special dynamic that we call criticality okay and then with the brain and and what you're observing the harmonics and the frequencies what what are we looking at in terms of what is in order what is in criticality criticality and what is potentially in chaos is it the actual frequencies and the harmonics uh so in this case we looked at the we we looked at whether the brain was at criticality using connectome harmonics, but uh, mm -hmm. finally the conclusion would be what is at criticality is the brain activity again. So the, we are looking at the spatiotemporal patterns of brain activity, and in using our specific method, uh, we decompose it into connectome harmonics. But in the end of the day. When we talk about criticality, we are talking about brain activity being at criticality. So the dynamics of brain activity being at criticality. Okay. And what, and I don't know if this, if this even makes sense, this question, but what forces keep our brain um, either at criticality or on the order side of criticality as opposed to moving into the chaos part? And, and I know you mentioned somewhere, you know, going forward, looking into using your, your methods of modeling to help treat people with, with mental illnesses like PTSD. Is, is that what's on the other side of, of criticality and into chaos? Is that where we start talking about some potential mental illnesses? And do, do these models and methods help understand that side of it? 
I think that that's really a great question. So uh, to answer the first part of your question, we currently don't know what are the forces in the brain that keep it at the structured uh, part of criticality or close to criticality. That's really an open question. And I feel it's a very interesting uh, subject to explore as well because it's a relatively new brain uh, being at criticality and there's quite uh, a few studies showing it now. So it is uh, an open question and a very interesting question to look at in the future. And in terms okay. of, um, in terms of uh, mental disorders, we can hypothesize, but I think... Um, I, I would rather, I mean, that is one, something that we, we plan in the near future. We actually have just started looking at the depression and uh, PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder data sets, using the same methodology um, of applying connectome harmonics. And part of it is also looking at criticality. So how, how close uh, are these, uh, is the brain activity in these conditions to criticality, whether it's a, uh, push away from criticality or tuning towards criticality that can be associated with these conditions. But I think it's too early to answer that question at this stage. We, we don't know yet. Okay. But potentially, I guess, there, there could be a new, a new way to perform diagnosis. Um, it could, let, let's say it could aid or it could help the current procedures for diagnosis, yes. To understand it, okay. Um, you know, and when you look at all of this and all, all the numbers you've crunched and the, and the results of this and, and the, the methods that have been produced from this, what uh, do you find yourself making predictions, you know, extrapolating from this? Is there anything that uh, can be applied to consciousness kind of as you defined it in the two ways earlier and, and the way that you um, emphasize the most? Is there anything here that you can kind of you know, extrapolate, look into the future, not, not necessarily time future, but move forward in this and make some kind of predictions or at least that excite you to say, oh, look, we found mm -hmm. this information. I think if it's very possible, we'll move on to find this information. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, um, yeah, I think so. Having already said that this is rather a method and not a theory, which actually takes away all the hypotheses. But given that we have such a tool um, that, that allows us to look at the neural data from a new perspective, we can always ask the question, so what are the signatures of these different states? And this is what we have been asking over the last few years. And it's, I find it quite encouraging, for example, that um, when we looked at the signatures of the, for example, two different psychedelic states, like psilocybin-induced psychedelic state, which is the uh, psychedelic compound in magic mushrooms, and the LSD-induced mm -hmm. state, um, we found quite remarkable similarities. And then when we compared, for example, psychedelic states uh, to meditation, we found a, a significant overlap in a, in a certain range, but differences in the other range, in another part of the connectome harmonic spectrum. Uh, so I think one hypothesis would be that all of these different states of consciousness, as well as maybe different, um, different psychiatric disorders, may have uh, a different or characteristic uh, signatures in their spectrum of connectome harmonics. 
And in terms of consciousness studies, I think that would then mean um, an altered state of consciousness um, being specific to a range of connectome harmonics. So activation of certain, uh, certain frequencies and deactivation of others. Whether that is going to generalize to mental disorders, we have to, again, apply the method and see, and that is very, very exciting for me to proceed on uh, at this stage. But I think generally that would be the hypothesis uh, uh, at this stage, like given the tool, given this new method, can we, uh, can we extract some characteristic signatures for, for these different states? Right. Now you mentioned the differences between, you mentioned, you know, uh, the psychedelics being very similar, but there being some key differences between say psychedelics and mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. um, do you see any um, conclusions or new hypotheses from the, the differences between those two? Um, so maybe one thing that would be a big uh, speculation at this stage, but uh, the fact that psychedelics suppress low frequency range, uh, where we also observe the default mode network and various other networks, mm. but mindfulness meditation did not. Uh, one very wild speculation could be um, the, 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 per, the, the perception changing in the psychedelic state, so how closely we are actually uh, tied or how, how realistically we are perceiving our, uh, our environments the way we do in the daily awake conscious state. Because assuming that psychedelic state alters our uh, perceptions um, in a different way than the meditation does, um, maybe that suppression can have um, a link to the way we perceive our daily awake conscious reality. But that would be a very wild speculation at this stage. Um, I think right. in terms of in terms of expanding the repertoire of connectome harmonics, they both seem to do that, and they that can give us some insights about maybe more flexibility in the way of thinking or um, what. So the one of the um, hypotheses that was um, important for these studies was, for instance. Uh, depression being a state where uh, people think similar thoughts that not, is not necessarily serving them and not finding a way out of that. So in a way, if we think of uh, brain activity or the landscape of brain activity like a, like a physical landscape, which uh, has mountains and valleys and all kinds of ups and downs, then um, using this type of method, we can look at how deep the valleys are. And if you get stuck in a valley, for instance. So um, I think the differences between the psychedelic state and meditation, um, if, they, if we manage to link it uh, in, a, in, a, in a useful way to the experience, to the accompanying experience, that can give us further insights. But... Anything I say at this stage would be rather a wild speculation right. because we haven't uh, looked at it in using the data at this stage. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But that is, uh, that is a great potential there you mentioned, especially with, uh, with the depression because that's such a confounding thing that we're having to deal with these days. 
Yes, and I, I mean, um, I think from the theoretical perspective, it does make sense to me. Um, of course, it is, again, too early to, to say anything because we just started looking mm-hmm. at the data. But if brain activity gets stuck in a certain thinking pattern, for instance, in depression, whether that's going to be the case or not, we, we have to see it. But, um, and if psychedelics, for instance, flatten that landscape, uh, so the valleys actually become no longer that deep, so we can actually find a way out into a new thinking pattern, then that yeah. uh, can give us insights into their, um, their therapeutic potential as well, which, uh, for which we know that there's a lot of research going on at, at this stage. Yeah, there sure is. That's, good. That's a good thing. Um, I have a couple, couple of what I call far-out questions. Um, you may or may not be able to to shed some light on, but the first one is uh, I know that uh, it's Robin Carhart Harris that did that actually did the fMRI experiment. But I, I noticed when I was watching one of your interviews, you said the subjects were quote tripping in a scanner, mm-hmm. which made me laugh. And mm-hmm. I also thought that I think you scientists should get together at the next Science of Consciousness convention and and form a band and play a song called tripping in a scanner. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I don't think, you know, yeah. what is that? We, we may follow you on that one. Yeah, that'd be good. I was at the last science of, con- of consciousness. And so I'll be at the next one and I will keep my eyes open for you guys uh, on the jam <laughs> night. Right. Um, now just talking about LSD and, and tripping in a scanner you know, uh, Timothy Leary, for all his, his good and bad that he did back at the Harvard with LSD studies, coined the term set and setting with LSD and, and the setting for an LSD experience being so vital. I, I certainly don't think he envisioned somebody literally being in a scanner, you know, during this experience where there, do you know of any, quote, bad trips that happened with any of these subjects? Did anybody have a hard time? And if so, I imagine if that happened, you weren't able to get any kind of um, reliable readings on that, but was there any kind of results or observations from those type of experiences as reported by the subjects? I think that's a very important point that you're bringing up uh, because, um, I mean, we are studying the psychedelic state in the scanner in the end of the day. That's what's available for us right now. But um, I think it is important to acknowledge the effect of set and setting and we may, you know, it may even change our findings or um, make the findings even more clear, uh, the conclusions and so on. So that is something that we definitely should uh, keep in mind when we talk about our data that it is a tripping in the scanner, so to speak. Um, about this data set, we were the lucky ones to get uh, the data already collected um, which was done by Robin Carhartt and his group. Um, I am not fully aware if there was any subject that was excluded because of this condition. Uh, so I'm not quite sure. Um, I, I know that there has been two subjects excluded, one of them because of technical difficulties, but I don't know if um, that the reason for any of these was about right. to, I, I suspect not, but... Um, because I know their depression study was quite successful. Um, so, but I'm, it may be, it may be more accurate to ask them directly. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, 
Okay, so just a few wrap-up things here. What what is in your future? What else are you going to be studying? I know you've mentioned, um, you know, looking at helping people with uh, mental illness like PTSD. Um, you know, what using your studies, your models and theories, what what uh, what's in your future? Um, yes, I I am. I mean, personally, very eager now to look at um, look at the characteristic signatures of of certain psychiatric disorders uh, using using this method. Um, and also following up on or continuing the study of consciousness and altered states of consciousness as well. Um, so my hope uh, is I, I find a little bit of a disconnect between, um, between the therapies and therapeutic tools and neuroscience at this stage. Uh, mm-hmm. So I really hope that if we gain a bit of a better insight and a bit of, of a better understanding of uh, how brain activity and brain dynamics change in, uh, for instance, depression or PTSD, um, maybe that can help us uh, to, to further some of the therapeutic tools that are currently available uh, it can give us maybe a little bit of a bridge between conscious and unconscious or subconscious because in, um, we know that in depression or um, that, can, for instance, in depression, there can be a suppression of memories or in PTSD, there's a replay of memories. So it uh, seems to me like that there, there are close um, relations or ties to the, the interplay between conscious and unconscious in terms of content. And when we study consciousness, it's, it seems like we are either focusing only on the content or only on the state of consciousness. And maybe using this type of new techniques, we can, um, we can start looking at the relationship between conscious and unconscious and its role for different therapeutic tools, which um, is, I believe, now reawakening uh, with the use of psychedelics for for therapy as well, so that um, right. some unconscious material may be becoming conscious in the psychedelic state, and how can we integrate that in order to have a therapeutic effect, uh, like a therapeutic benefit from the psychedelic state? So right. I think there are many many <laughs> exciting questions to ask, and um, we are just scratching the surface so far. Okay. All right, great. Is there, uh, is there anything I haven't asked you? Is there anything else you, you would want to share or put out there? Um, anything going on that you want to make sure that the people know is happening? Um, no, I think we, we have covered most of the uh, important aspects of the method and its applications very, very nicely, very beautifully. Thank you for all the questions. Okay, well, you're welcome. And I want to thank you too. I really appreciate your time. Um, it's always always humbling to have somebody like you come on and, and share your, your studies. So once again, uh, thank you for that, and I really appreciate it. No, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it, too. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash theconsciousnesspodcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.